The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Uh, we got Ben Bernanke on this week. He uh, talked to us about baseball. He talked to us about politics, all those great American things. Uh, these are kind of the topics we were able to discuss with the former Fed chair uh, because a lot of the stuff you really want to hear his views on, he's a central banker. He's not going to give it to you. He's not going to tell us whether he thinks Janet Yellen is doing a good job, whether he thinks she's being too dovish or just plain indecisive. Um, so we had to kind of maneuver and navigate. I mean, this is not Ben Bernanke's um, first interview. In fact, he's been out there shilling his book, The Courage to Act. But I do think we got some good things. Take a listen. Like a general coming home from a great battle right. and reflecting on the war that's just transpired, a, a lot of what you write about is this, this battle basically to save the financial system. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from it about yourself, really? Like, are you a humbler guy? Are you a more confident guy? Well, I mean, a lot of, you know, I came uh, as an academic, you know, and a lot of the things I learned as an academic were very helpful. I, I'd done a lot of study on the Great Depression, on financial panics, and so on. But this also was t- uh, testing personally. I had to, you know, lead through a, a very difficult crisis. I had to work with Congress. I had to work with the administration. Yeah. So some of these uh, skills which aren't necessarily you know, common in academics, I had to develop, you know, those more personal yeah, I mean, leadership so, uh, skills. What, what, how does that change you? I mean, do you, do you feel more confident about your views on economics and policies than you did before? Well, I mean, the, the crisis kind of shook up a lot of received wisdom. I mean, I had worked a lot on financial panics, and I, I did understand mm-hmm. that this was a very serious uh, shock to our economy. Um, but, you know, again, personally, it was, it was an important experience for me in terms of you know, learning how to navigate Washington, which was something I'd never done before. Right, right. You know, like, you could probably teach a lot of a lot of us about <laughs> that. Um, the Courage Act is a very bold title. I mean, what, what, why did you choose that? Well, I mean, I'll blame my wife. She she proposed. She said I should use it, but I think you know it was a very chaotic time. It was a scary time. Uh, decisions being made were um, of great consequence mm-hmm. in a very difficult political environment, and. I dedicated the book to people around the world, policymakers uh, who were willing to do what it took, you know, to get us through that crisis. In the United States, it was the Federal Reserve and the Treasury that took the heat and did what had to be done. Now, you said you, you were previously in academia. Mm-hmm. Now you're at Brookings. Right. Um, if you were to go back to academia and, and change, what, how would you change your coursework or yeah. your, your lesson plans for your students? Well, I wouldn't have to change as much as some. When I was at Princeton, I, I did teach classes on financial crises and and their implications. But uh, if you look at the undergraduate textbooks, you know, they're, they don't talk much about, about financial, the financial uh, uh, markets and how they affect the economy. And I think mm. they should in, reflect that more now, obviously. And uh, if I was revising a textbook, I would put more in about so, so financial more markets. less theoretical or just so more of the, the case study? Well, it's, just, it's just that, you know, uh, in an extreme view, I mean, macroeconomics over the last few decades um, has really ignored finance to a large extent mm-hmm. and just talked about the real factors, the, the shocks to the economy that might come from uh, changes in productivity or changes in um, labor supply or whatever, whatever is happening. And, and uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that the crisis did is it really brought economists' attention back to the importance of financial stability and how important that is for overall economic stability and growth. 
You know, let me ask you, turning a bit to the economy, I mean, what, what worries you uh, about the sort of global economy uh, at the moment? Well, uh, you know, during the crisis, the world sort of went down and up together. Now we have many different stories around the world. But from the U.S. perspective, I mean, the U.S. domestic economy has been quite solid. Uh, housing is improving, labor market's improving, and the drag that we're facing is mostly uh, international. And I think the locus of the problem right now is probably emerging markets, which are trying to adapt to a somewhat slower growth in, in China and also to, to not robust growth in Europe and Japan. So uh, the global economy is, is a drag on our recovery right now. It's how much of that is related to monetary policy? I mean, you know, there's been some talk that a, a Brazil had the money rush in, then it mm. rushes out, or, or Russia. I mean, mm. and, and of course, people have said, well, of course, that's the Federal Reserve. They kept rates too low for too long. I mean, do you think that that's a fair criticism at all? Well, you know, the, there is some impact on emerging markets when the Fed changes interest rates because the dollar is such an important currency. Sure. And because in periods of exuberance or, or risk-taking, you know, money flows into the emerging markets and periods of, of, of uh, more caution, it can flow out. Um, I, so I think that's a real issue. I don't think it's the major issue. I mean, if you look at a country like Russia, for example, obviously they're facing uh, oil price declines yeah. and geopolitical concerns and sanctions. Governance problems. Governance too. problems. Brazil, likewise, right. having governance problems. Corruption. Um, so there are lots of things happening around the world. China is a big factor, and China is making a transition from uh, a sort of top-down, you know, partially centrally planned economy to a more bottom-up, you know, consumer-led, market-oriented economy. So all these changes are taking place, and I think overall they're they're more important. But um, the, the Fed obviously does pay attention to what's happening globally, and I think uh, as a central banker, one of the things that I was engaged in was working with central bankers around the world, both in terms of monetary policy, but also talking about how to make their markets more uh, more robust so that they could deal better with with changes in, in capital flows, for example. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue that the decisions made by central banks, including the Federal Reserve, uh, during and after the crisis were the wrong ones. I mean, the economy, has, particularly the U.S. economy, has been quite robust. But you, you hear these, these people griping quite a bit about the sort of insidious effects that we don't know about, the sort of boiled frog effects, right? So right. whether it's companies kept alive too long, productivity down, um, asset prices up, where bad asset price, financial prices rather than, you know, others. So, well, how do you... Well, there are lots of issues. Many of them, I think, are, are false issues. I mean, for example, there was a huge amount of concern uh, early on about Fed policy causing hyperinflation, causing the, the dollar Republic to collapse. Everyone talked about yeah, that. you know, Zimbabwe, you know, yes. on, you know was, was the next right. thing. So a lot of it is wrong. Uh, some of it has some basis. Uh, and I think, for example, financial stability, again, is very important, and, and the Fed is very concerned about that, pays a lot of attention to what's happening in financial markets. But that said, the, the economy, we had 10% unemployment, and fiscal policy after 2009 was not particularly supportive. So the Fed, you know, has a mandate to, mm -hmm. to help restore jobs and keep the economy away from deflation. So, you know, that was the first order concern. That was the main thing the Fed had to take care of. There are other issues, absolutely, but none of them, I think, are strong enough to justify not doing the right thing for the overall economy. I mean, you, you've said that too low inflation is, is one of the, is the main problem that we have. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, is there, can one distinguish between, like, bad low deflation and good in deflation? And yeah, there is, there is some basis for distinguishing, and we saw, for example, in the 19th century that the U.S. had deflation and rapid growth at the same time because it was coming mostly from the supply side. Mm -hmm. You know, the increase of supply was 
pushing down prices. But you know, I think that uh, in the modern world, um, you know, it, most of the time, and what we've seen certainly recently, is economies where demand is not sufficient to provide full employment, where unemployment is above normal levels. And that deflation is, is dangerous deflation, and we want to stay away from that. And Japan and Europe are fighting against it now, and that's a situation we don't want to be in in the United States. Just turning a bit to regulatory policy, which is another you know, key feature of your book. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you think that giving the Fed greater responsibilities, and this could be true of any central bank, mm-hmm. you know, as we have, but in the States we have done with the Dodd-Frank Act, mm-hmm. macroprudential regulation, things like that. Does that set the central bank up for failure that could be existential, given mm-hmm. there are so many critics out there in the political world of the Fed? Well, it, it does put very heavy responsibilities on the Fed. I mean, the Fed did lose some authorities, too. For example, the Consumer Protection Bureau took some of the That's right. Fed's uh, consumer protection authorities. But I, I do think that, from the society's point of view, that the central bank needs to be involved in the financial stability monitoring and, uh, and supporting that. Uh, because the central bank, first of all, has the lender of last resort authority. It has the most expertise. It can connect the macro developments and the financial developments better than anybody else. So, yeah, so there are some institutional risks to it. I, I agree. But around the world, you know, wherever, you know, in the in UK, for example, where the Bank of England lost its, yeah. its uh, supervisory authorities after the crisis, they said, well, that was a problem. We need to put that back in the, in the Bank of England. Same happening in Europe. Mm-hmm. So around the world, the trend is very much to giving the central bank more authority to, to look at the system as a whole, not necessarily to deal with all the micro issues, but to look at the overall functioning of the system. And that's where the expertise is. And, and so I think that's needed uh, now. But I agree with you that, it, that it's a very tough job. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's it's kind of obvious since the crisis, at least in the United States, is that monetary policy had to do all the work because fiscal policy has been a bit of an abject failure, in the, to, to be frank. Um, that just cr- increases the amount of, you know, of, of concern that people have that the Fed could actually find itself in a mess um, if, if it doesn't spot that bubble or that, you know, that Well, the, the Fed and other central banks have been called on to do too much. And I like to say, you know, if you think interest rates are too low, have been too low for too long, don't talk to the Fed. Talk to fiscal policy because we have not had a balanced monetary fiscal mix and, and a more supportive fiscal policy would have allowed the Fed perhaps to be a little bit less aggressive in what it did. Yeah. Um, but again, so I mean, there, I, I'm not denying that there are issues associated with with uh, Fed policies. Uh, but again, given that fiscal policy was not doing much, what what could the Fed do? But other than use the tools it had to try to help us get back to a more normal economy, right. which which sort of leads us to the political discussion. Which mm-hmm. I saved that for dessert. You know, it's mm-hmm. the interesting. Uh-huh. But. Um, you dropped your affiliation with the Republican Party recently, and I saw just this week Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, who is uh, running for president and has been a frequent critic like his father of the Fed, mm-hmm. he, he basically charged that the, the central bank effectively exercises price controls over the cost of money was his, his argument, um, something that it would obviously never embrace in sort of a free market system. What do you say to that? That's just, that's just a misunderstanding of what the Fed is doing. The, 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 first of all, there's no such thing as a quote, market-determined interest rate with no reference whatsoever to the Fed. I mean, the Fed has to do something. Whatever the Fed does, it's got to set interest rates somewhere, and then the market will do the rest in terms of setting the term structure and so on. But more than that, I mean, what the Fed is trying to do, the Fed is actually trying to get interest rates to the right level in the sense that there presumably is some interest rate which is consistent with a growing, prosperous, full-employment economy 
that's the interest rate the Fed is trying to get. If it raises interest rates prematurely or too much, I mean, uh, hypothetically, uh, you know, that, that's not any more market determined than what it's doing now, but it would be worse for the economy because it would, uh, it would result in a slower growth and more unemployment. So this idea that there's artificial interest rate management or that there's such a thing as market interest rates independent of what the Fed does is just is incoherent. It's not a wrong, it's just incoherent. How concerned are you about political dysfunction here? Well, uh, in general, I'm quite concerned. I, you know, I think Congress uh, is having a lot of difficulty obviously getting things done and, and it's actually to the extent that it's threatening, for example, not to raise the debt limit and, and do fundamental things like that, it's actually endangering the recovery. So it does concern me. Um, also, I have concerns, you know, in some of the uh, opposition to, the, you know, some of the, uh, the hostility, I guess I would say, stuff, to, the, to yeah. the Fed, I think is also uh, overdone. Um, but, but it has bro- ever always been thus, hasn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, there have been periods where, you know, during the heyday of Alan Greenspan, you know, where right. John McCain said that if he died, they'd have to set him up in a chair, you know, and, <laughs> and, and pretend he was still alive. So that was, that was too much in the other direction. You know, the, the central bank does take criticism and it should take criticism, but um, I think that some politicians are, are, are overdoing that now. I mean, you don't have a dog in this fight, in the political fight, but I mean, there is, and, and there is a lot of hyperbole at this point in, in, the, mm-hmm. in the cycle, but some ideas have been floated out there. Some of them, mm-hmm. like Jeb Bush's uh, notion that, um, you know, to, to, to get rid of the deductibility of corporate debt, for instance, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. capping mortgage interest deductibility, mm-hmm. all these things that one could argue, and just, just taking this more economically theoretical, I mean, those are distortive policies. How, how do you feel about sort of removing those kinds of Well, uh, you know, I, I want good economic policies, and corporate taxes is one area where I think there's a lot of agreement among economists that lower rates, uh, closing loopholes is, is smart policy, is good policy. Um, and I think that's, that's it's not just a Republican or Democratic idea. I think there's a lot of uh, support for both that on both sides of the aisle, but... Um, there's also political resistance. For example, the, the corporations who would lose their loopholes, obviously mm-hmm. that's very mm-hmm. important to them. Um, of course, they get it back. I mean, under the Bush plan, they'd get it back by being able to deduct, I don't know, plant. Well, well maybe, you know, I mean, some, you know, if you're, gonna, if you're going to uh, close loopholes and keep the revenue received more or less constant, there's going to be winners and losers. Right. And the losers are going to be unhappy. So um, th- it's not going to be a, a political slam dunk. And, and we've seen already, you know, that... Uh, that efforts to, to make progress on corporate tax reform have, have not so far borne no. fruit. But it's an area where I, I hope that there will be more work because uh, it, it is an area where economists are supportive of reform and where uh, there seems to be support for it uh, on both sides of the aisle. Now, you're, you're working, you're also advising a hedge fund, Citadel, mm-hmm. Ken Grip. What What's that like? Well, what I do is I, you know, they, they ask me for my views on the economy, basically. I'm doing what I would do sure. if I was still... Princeton professor. Um, so, you know, they ask my views, and, and I'm not involved in any kind of investment strategy or okay. trading or anything like that, but, but, you know, I've been trying to advise them and thinking about, you know, how markets will evolve and how the economy will evolve, and it's been interesting for me because I've learned a little bit more about, you know, how market participants, you know, sure. what their lives yeah. are like and what, what, how, how, how they view the world. And, of course, I was looking at it from the Fed side, you know, as, as a policymaker, so it's been it's been it's been an educational for me. All right. All right. Lastly, uh, you're a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. Who's going to win the World Series and why? Well, I, you know, as you know, my my dog in the fight, the Nationals have kind of unfortunately kind of faded, 
And, and the Mets are looking sort of with the team that they lost to are kind of looking like the team of destiny right now, right. But, but, but we'll see. And they're uh, a team that you could, you could argue the owners lost all that money in the Madoff affair. Yeah. So maybe this is sort of the ultimate. There's uh, some kind of karma going on here. I don't know exactly what, but uh, they, they really, you got to give them a lot of credit maybe it's for. Maybe a full recovery of the financial cri- from the financial crisis. That may, be the, that may be the most single important event. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Chairman. Great. Thank you. Okay, I think overall he said some pretty interesting things. Uh, He talked about this problem with fiscal policy. He said uh, the fact that Congress did so little um, meant that the Fed had to be more aggressive. That's kind of interesting. So, of course, being a New Yorker, how can I argue with his views on the chances of the Mets in the World Series? Anyway, thanks for listening to our first episode of The Exchange. Next time, I'll be speaking with Joseph Stiglitz, the Columbia professor, former World Bank chief economist and overall Nobel winning stud. Follow us on Twitter at Breaking Views and at Reuters and tell all your friends and start listening to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you.